So just to remind you, to give you a little bit of context again, we are in a sermon series called Ascent, and in this series we are exploring how to grow in intimacy with God. We absolutely believe that the heart of the Christian faith is about how we can have a relationship with God, one that becomes deeper and deeper over time as we pursue him in response to his pursuit of us. The passage of scripture that we are looking at in exploring intimacy with God seems like an unlikely one. As we've already had a chance to explore in the last couple of messages in this series, this is the encounter that Moses and the people of God have with God at Mount Sinai. When the earth is quaking and and there's smoke and fire on the mountain and trumpets are blaring. So at first glance, it seems like a really unlikely passage to look at to explore how we can grow in intimacy with God. But if you've been with us the last few Sundays, you know that actually there is a ton that is really significant in this passage about our relationship with God. So let me just remind you of some of the territory that we've covered up to this point, and that will set the stage for what we are talking about this morning. What we've said is in in this uh, story of God bringing his people to his, essentially to his home, uh, symbolically, to Mount Sinai, is we see the initiative of God in everything. They are there because he has brought them there. In fact, in Exodus chapter 19, he says, I brought you to myself. I carried you here on eagle's wings. Every single moment that we experience with God is one that begins at his initiative and not at ours. We are in God's presence every time at God's invitation and response to his initiative. And that's true when we gather together on Sunday mornings here and, and, uh, and remember all over again what is most real and most true and, and open our hearts afresh to God in corporate worship. It is every bit as true on Tuesday morning or Saturday morning when we have our personal devotional time with the Lord, open the scriptures and pray and, and worship God on our own in our, in our own spaces and our own time. And it's true every time we pause at any point along the path in any given day to pause and remember that God is present to us and that he is worthy of our worship and our service. In every one of those moments, formal or informal in its worship, in every one of those moments, we are there because of the initiative of God. He has already drawn near to us and then said, now draw near to me. The next part of the story that we You'll remember that we encounter as it unfolds, starting in Exodus 19 and going all the way through to about Exodus 34, is having brought his people to his mountain, now God seeks to, again, he's the one who takes initiative, he seeks to reveal himself. What is true about my nature? What's true about my character? What's true about my heart towards you? What's true about the love that defines my relationship with you? God doesn't leave us to guess, and we would not be able to guess. God makes clear to us what is true about who he is. So you may remember that the way that God did that first on the mountain was by giving these uh, physical, symbolic expressions of power 
that would remind his people of their holiness. So God takes the things that are the most scary and overwhelming to people in the ancient Near East. A mountain quaking, fire, smoke, trumpets blaring, cloud cover that, that, that uh, causes you to become lost and overwhelmed. God takes those physical symbols that humanity was already familiar with and says, as a way of demonstrating to you my perfection and my purity, as a way of showing you how my holiness is completely separate from who you are as ones who fall short of the glory of God, I am going to put those physical symbols on display so that you would have a taste, so you would have a glimpse of the line that separates me from you. Then you may remember uh, God reveals his transcendence, this time by giving visions that fall completely outside of anything that humanity was familiar with. And Moses and the elders grope to try to come up with some sort of earthly point of reference to be able to explain or, or describe what they've just experienced that God has shown them. God shows himself exalted above them, and they can see this, this uh, lapis lazuli rock that's like this kind of celestial blue, that's sort of like that, but uh, they're reaching, they're groping to try to find ways of describing this transcendent vision of God as one who is mighty and majestic, the creator who is completely separate from everything else that exists because it all exists by his choice and because of him. He has brought it into existence. He alone is without limit. Everything else is dependent and finite and limited. God draws a line again. Here is me, the transcendent God, and here is you. Then finally, as we move into chapters 33 and 34 of Exodus, God puts on display the uniqueness of his love for his people. We talked about this a couple of weeks ago, that, that for us as human beings, as fallen and broken human beings, there isn't a single relationship that has a dimension of love in it where part of that relationship isn't about us gauging how the other person has responded to us and basing our response on the way they've treated us. I love you if you love me. I love you to the extent that you love me. When, when I feel that you've hurt me, then I cease to love you. God contrasts his love for his people with our love for one another. And he says, my love is not based on the perfection, the performance of your commitment to me. My love is based on my own commitment to you. So God describes his love as an abounding love, as a forgiving love, as a compassionate and gracious love, as a love that, that will overlook wickedness and rebellion and sin. So God puts on display, again, he draws a line. Here is his love as being utterly distinct from our own. So God puts on display his holiness and his transcendence and his covenant love. And then we see this passage in Exodus chapter 20, verse 21, that I think is so instructive. It says, God has come in this way to show you his awesome power and instill a deep and reverent awe within you. The message 
this morning is about God's glorious character as he reveals it to us and our response. God says that he has come to us in this way, overwhelming his people with these displays of his holiness, his transcendence, and his love in order to instill in them a deep and reverent awe. So let's pause there, and then I want to come right back to that. Let me just ask you to stop at this point and and think with me about why you're here this morning. You know, I think if we're not careful, we can, all of us, just kind of drift into worship more out of habit than out of a profound conviction of what is really happening in this moment as we gather together to worship or as we approach God on any given morning or throughout the day. And I think we may fall into thinking, well, actually, you know, this is about my edification. This is a chance for me to grow, to learn some things, to become a better Christian. Or maybe this is to fulfill a duty. I have a, a sense that this is that pleases God or meets a requirement that God has. So this is a step that I take in order to, uh, to kind of satisfy that expectation that God has. Or maybe I see it as a way to meet a need. You know, life is hard. There's so much going on. I just need something that's going to carry me through this week. Or, you know, I'm here this week because I was here last week. It's just this sort of habit I have. I don't really stop and think about why I'm here. This whole story about Moses and the people of God being brought by God to Mount Sinai at his initiative to put before them an invitation to come into his presence and worship him and to grow in reverent and deep awe, I think it is so instructive for us as we think about our own approaching God together on a morning like this. The word that we use to describe approaching God in a service is worship. It's a word that doesn't really mean much to us because it has drifted away from its roots. In Middle English, the word was worth-ship. The whole idea was the root, the essence of worship is coming into the presence of God and being given eyes to see him in that experience of worship to see who he is and to see what characterizes him, to see afresh his attributes, to see afresh his glory, to see his worth, to see what makes him precious and amazing and beautiful and awesome and glorious and and utterly compelling and utterly worth our, our service, and then to give him what he is worth, to give over to God a fitting response in the light of what God has revealed to us about who he is. So every time we gather, and there are a lot of different elements to worship, there's a connection with each other, there's being taught from the word, there are the the prayers that we offer and the songs that we sing, but in the middle of all of that is a belief that the living God stands in our midst, he invites us into his presence, He he has taken the initiative to bring us into his presence. He moves to reveal himself to us in our midst, to open our spiritual eyes to his presence in order that we might see what he is worth and then give to God what he is worth. God has come in this way to show you his awesome power and to instill a deep and reverent awe within you. 
The rest of the message this morning, I just want to take us to Moses's deep and reverent response of awe. In Exodus chapter 34, 8, we uh, have recorded for us the moment when Moses has just watched God walk before him, putting on display his glory and his goodness, declaring these stunning realities about who he is, and this all coming on the heels of these magnificent and overwhelming displays of the holiness and transcendence of God. And it says, this is Moses' response. Moses bowed to the ground at once and worshipped. So let's just open that up a little bit. Moses bowed to the ground at once and worshipped. It's interesting that actually the, the first words that show up in this verse in the Hebrew are the words at once. They're in the place of emphasis. You have a sense that you are watching Moses and something comes upon him. It's not him leaning back in his chair and saying, you know, this is all very interesting, God. Thank you so much. I, I find this very beneficial for me, very edifying for me. Uh, so, so let me think through what might be a fitting response. There is a sense as we watch Moses that he is overcome by and he is compelled by what God has made known to him. God's holiness, his transcendence, his covenant love have been revealed, and Moses cannot help but respond. And I believe that there is some level at which that is true for us. If we go through a whole worship service declaring what's true about God, and our eyes never are really open to his presence in our midst, of shifting from he is to you are, it's when that moment comes, God, you are this way. This is what's true about you. That, I think, is the moment that's described here. And I think it's a great reminder for us that the true worship leader in any worship service is not anybody up here on the platform, but God himself by his spirit. We were created to worship God. We are in the presence of God at his invitation. So by his spirit, God will lead us in our worship of him. He will move us in our hearts towards a response that is proportion and fitting to the worth and wonder of who God is. So at once, Moses acts. And then we're told he bows down and worships. Now this is a really interesting dynamic. Uh, You know phrases that we use like tried and true or straight and narrow or, well, there are a lot of others, peanut butter and jelly. These uh, these word pairs that we have where it's kind of hard for us to think about the one word being standalone. It always seems to to belong to the other word. Well, that's absolutely true of this expression, bow down and worship. But this this phrase shows up all through the Old Testament. In fact, this is the most common way of describing what worship is. It's the most common Hebrew word or word pair for it. Uh, You think of of Psalm 95, verse 6. Come, let us worship and bow down as one of many examples. But the thing that really makes this word pair so interesting is basically the words mean exactly the same thing. Bow down and bow down. Bend over and bend over. Lower yourself and lower yourself. So, first of all, let's talk a little bit about the meaning of that, and then let's talk about why it's two of those words instead of one. So I think the first thing that's really important to notice is is the full significance of this posture that's being described. 
we think of bow down and we might think of something like this in Western culture. Uh, kind of a polite, formal, outdated way of maybe acknowledging somebody who's in an important role or something like that. Uh, definitely not a humbling of ourselves. It's kind of a way of being polite or mannerly to someone, you know, something like this. Those uh, in our midst whose roots are not so much in the Western world, but more in the Eastern world, will be able to equip us here in understanding the significance of bowing. Bowing is a profoundly significant expression of humility before another individual. And we'll, we'll come to that in just a moment. But the kind of bowing we should be thinking about here is somebody dropping to their knees and then getting down on their hands and then lowering their forehead all the way down to the ground. It, it actually, um, it's the word that's used to describe what someone does when they're out in the wilderness and they're thirsty and they come upon a stream. They lower themselves all the way down and place their face in the water to drink. Now, the the thing that makes this significant is how this fits culturally. The king was the person who was seated and seated on the throne. And every throne had a footstool. And the footstool represented the realm or the kingdom. It represented the uh, terrain over which the king ruled. For a, an individual to come and bow down before a king was to place his head beneath the king's feet. So the individual's neck becomes the king's footstool. And in fact, this is imagery that you find all through the scriptures. You come across this idea in Jeremiah and in Isaiah and in the Psalms. In fact, um, I had a chance when I was uh, doing a seminary in a suitcase trip. Some of you are aware that I've done equipping of pastors in different countries around the world. I was in Egypt, and we got a chance to go to the Antiquities Museum in Cairo for an afternoon. It's absolutely incredible experience, and we got to see King Tut's treasures. The of all the of King Tut's treasures, the thing that that really that struck me most was seeing a pair of his sandals that looked like they had just been painted uh, a couple of years before. They were so bright and fresh. And on the inside of them were uh, two slaves bound. One of them was dark skin and one was light skin. And they were, they were clothed in the dress of the, the country that bordered Egypt north of them and the country that bordered Egypt south of them. Both countries that they had conquered. This is painted on the insole of each of King Tut's sandals. And, and this is his way of, with every step of reinforcing his right authority and rule over those individuals who were symbolically under his feet. So for a person to bow down is not just an expression of profound respect. It, is, it moves even more into a realm of a relinquishment, of a yielding before a person who is in authority. All right, so now the question that I think is worth our asking is why is this word repeated twice? I think what's interesting to discover is that the first word has come to take on the significance of bowing down externally, your body bowing down. And the second word came to take on the, the meaning of what happened internally, your heart bowing down, having a, a posture of humility, a, a bending down before an authority. And so what I'd like to do is explore both of those words a little bit further with you.
And I'm actually going to take them out of order. I'm just going to rearrange things in my notes here. Uh, because uh, while the first one that we encounter is the word for bowing down our body, I think it's more important that we get at what's going on in our heart because that is really the heart of where worship takes place. So the, uh, the imagery of worshiping, of bowing down in our hearts, it really captures three different kinds of truths that are all communicated at the same time with this bowing down of ourselves. So again, uh, let's not stay back in, uh, with ancient Israel at Mount Sinai. Think about how this is relevant for our own worship. The, the first thing that bowing down uh, before God communicates is a lifting up of God. It's saying, you are the highest one in the room. You occupy the, the position of the greatest authority and might and power. You are the most worthy of of worship and honor and glory and praise. I lift you up. The second meaning is at the very same time by lowering myself down, I am saying I recognize that I'm nothing compared to you. I see myself in right relationship to you and I see that uh, the appropriate posture before you is is to see myself as nothing before your transcendence and your holiness and your perfect love. And then the third dimension of that is the dimension that says, and I see in the light of who you are and in the light of my right relationship and right proportion before you, I see that, that a worthy gift of worship in response to who you are is to give all of myself to you. A worthy, a fitting response is to give you my allegiance, to give you my life, to surrender myself over to you. And bowing down before God communicates that as well. Now, what's really interesting is that there is an expression that we find even in in three times in chapters 32 and 33 of Exodus of the people of Israel and others being stiff-necked. To be stiff-necked is to bow your body, but not to bow your heart. To say, I'm going to go through the motions before you, God. I'm going to say the right things and I'm going to do the right things. But in my heart, I'm going to stand before you in defiance of your authority as an independent being, as the one who calls his own shots in his own life, not acknowledging your rightful place of rule over me. It's interesting, I had a chance to talk to Dylan Kane, my son-in-law, over the weekend. He just got done writing a 25-page paper about the kingdom of God. Uh, Dylan is uh, in seminary right now, and he's a youth pastor at a church in Charlotte. And he said the thing that struck him going through that, writing that paper, was uh, the reminder, again, that the kingdom of God is not some realm. It's not a place. The kingdom of God is the reign and rule of God. The kingdom is wherever the rightful reign of the king is recognized among the subjects. For an individual to bow down in that manner before God, to bow their heart in that manner as a way of yielding up their lives, surrendering to God, that is acknowledging God's rightful reign and rule over them. So all of that then brings us to the the other word that's used to describe bowing, and that is the, the word that describes our bowing down bodily. So I just want to remind you as we come to this word, that in our relationships with one another, what we do with our bodies is expressive of what's going on in our hearts. I mean, 
it's possible you may have experienced hugging somebody who utterly did not hug you back, just kind of stood stiff as a board. I can remember uh, uh, this happening in a very awkward way in an interaction I had with a a pastor who was kind of a well-known pastor. Uh, I saw him again after I hadn't seen him for a while and and was uh, kind of surprised by the stiffness of his response. And and we kind of laughed about it after the fact. But um, imagine what would happen if in that moment, if you, you tried to hug a person and they just kind of stood there like this, and you said, what, is there something wrong? Is there... And they said, what, what do you mean? Well, I hugged you. Yeah, I'm hugging you back, but I'm just hugging you in my mind. I'm not really hugging you with my body, but in my heart, I'm hugging you. You know, the, the thing that becomes obvious in our dealings with each other is that our bodies and our souls uh, join together in their expression of esteem or affection or whatever it might be. A couple examples, Leviticus 19.32 talks about standing up in the presence of elderly as a way of, of showing deference and respect and honor. And in 2 Corinthians chapter 13, it talks about giving a uh, greeting one another with a holy kiss, a way of, of saying, uh, be open in your expression of affection to one another as brothers and sisters in Christ. Well, it's really interesting that in spite of the fact that God is invisible, he doesn't have a body, there's not some place where you can say, there he is. In spite of that, we are invited in multiple places in the scripture to involve our bodies in the expression of what's going on in our hearts. We see that in worship specifically. We are invited in Psalm 24, 3, to stand before God in worship. In Psalm 95, 6, to bow before God in worship. In 95, 6, to kneel before God in worship. In Psalm 149, to dance. In Psalm 47, to clap in Psalm 63, to lift hands. And it's both a way of, of saying you are lifting praises up to God and you are receiving back from God what he has to pour out upon you. So this idea of our body being participatory in our heart's worship of God is a biblical one. It, it fits with our calling to love God with all of our heart, soul, mind, and strength. And this is part of how that passage was, has been understood over the years. And it, uh, it is something that comes through in these different passages. So one of the things that's reinforced for us in scripture is that we are not just souls in boxes of flesh. Sometimes we can misunderstand the teaching of scripture that, uh, that says that the, the flesh and the spirit are opposed to one another. Um, that doesn't mean our physical flesh is somehow uh, to be understood as being dirty or less important in our relationship with the Lord. I mean, think about this. When we become redeemed people, when Jesus returns, each of us will be given a new physical body. So we will be embodied souls eternally, not just spirits hovering uh, kind of somewhere near this, the, uh, the presence of God. So our, the participation of our bodies in worship can be significant. But I think it's important that we understand this, not from the perspective of some sort of obligation to participate or to conform in a certain way, but rather to see this as an invitation to our full heart engagement in our worship. I wonder what this might mean for us in our worship here. I still remember uh, at College Hill Church in Cincinnati, Ohio, Jerry Kirk's church, where, um, where I attended right after I became a follower of Christ, I still remember in that uh, church, he invited a pastor named Juan Carlos Ortiz to come and teach on worship. And he was the first person who pointed out to me 
this passage uh, or these passages of scripture uh, that that show that the way we use our bodies in worship can be significant. And I remember inviting us to just to say, hey, what would it look like for you to respond to this invitation to lift holy hands to God? And I remember kind of looking around awkwardly and then closing my eyes and thinking, okay, I'll give it a go. Let's see what's going to happen. And uh, it felt strange to start with. And then very quickly, I discovered that, that rather than it being some sort of over display of, of, uh, of, of kind of emotionalism or some kind of just going along with what everybody else was doing group thing. It just was a, became a meaningful way for me to express my heart's devotion and my allegiance to the Lord. So as a people of God, I believe that God puts before us this morning the invitation to respond. He has opened our eyes to see glimpses of his holiness and his transcendence is the the wonder of his covenant love for us and he invites us to be in awe of him and to respond with an expression of that awe and moses puts before us a beautiful example of what that can look like to bow down at once as the spirit of god is the one who leads us in our worship of him to allow our bodies to participate in our worship and to bring our hearts before god in a full yieldedness and surrender to him I've read before this uh, passage from Madame Guyon, who describes a short and very easy method of prayer. And let me just end with this and let this lead us as an invitation into the worship that follows this message. Turn your heart to the presence of God. As you come to him, humbly acknowledge that he is everything. Confess to him that you are nothing. Give yourself up to God. Acknowledge before him his right to rule over you. Surrender your heart into his hands. Surrender your freedom into his hands. Yield to the Lord his right to do with you as he pleases. Abandonment is the key to the inner court, the key to the fathomless depths. Abandonment is the key to the inward spiritual life. Surrender yourself to be led by God. Bow down and worship him. Our gracious Lord and God, we thank you for the way that you open our eyes to your presence in our midst, that you take the initiative to to draw near to us and you invite us to draw near to you and as we do so, to abandon ourselves before you in a response of worship that is proportionate to the worth that we see in you. Because you are holy and transcendent and beautiful in your love for us, you are worthy of everything that we are and everything that we have. We worship you, King on the throne. And it's in the name of Jesus, our King, that we pray. Amen.